Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm your familiar stranger for today, Matthew Fung. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, I'm speaking with Diana Tung, who is a PhD candidate at the Australian National University. Diana is currently completing her fieldwork abroad in the city of Iquitos in Peru. Diana's project is focusing on the aguaje fruit, which has been touted as a miracle fruit, with a plethora of health benefits and its subsequent rise in popularity in the international market. She's studying what this popularity means for people whose livelihoods rely exclusively on this crop. We talk about all things fieldwork and some of the effects that COVID-19 has had on her methods and on the people who she is working with. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strains Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's interview. So here it is, my interview with Diana Tong. I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about how you're going in terms of right now, what you're doing and where you are. Sure. So right now... I'm speaking to you from Iquitos, which is the largest city in the Peruvian Amazon. Um, I've been here since January uh, 2020, um, went through quarantine here for several months, and now luckily um, I've emerged on the other end of it. And I would say fieldwork, it's interesting in normal, quote-unquote, normal circumstances, but I guess everything right now is seen through the filter of the coronavirus so i can definitely say there's lots of ups and downs one week it might be going really well uh, people are really eager to talk to you and then the next week you might find no one's answering your calls <laughs> so you, you have to just figure out you know how to play things by ear uh, but also just go with the flow and kind of think of things in the long term as well as the day by day right so who are you working with, I should ask, rather? <laughs> sure. Well, the project that I'm looking at is focused on the commercialization of an Amazonian palm fruit called the aguaje. And it's a palm that grows all throughout South America, but it's only really here in Iquitos that people are really consuming it to such a large extent. So estimates in 2015 were saying that people eat it on a daily basis, um, to the tune of 50 tons a day, uh, but it's also become increasingly sought after uh, on the international uh, market for the oil that it produces, uh, which people are using in cosmetics, as well as a superfood uh, because of the various vitamins that it has and lots of female hormones as well. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. Imagine if we could rewind pre-January 2020. Yeah. What did you think your field work was going to look like before COVID? I still remember during my um, 
pre-field work seminar uh, that Yasmin was in the audience and <laughs> she mm. she was great because uh, in the Q&A afterwards she said, well, how's this going to work? You're talking about three different products in three different locations and it just sounds like a lot. And I, I just thought you know, she summed it up so well. And of course, she was absolutely right. And I think people will also say that what you decide to do before fieldwork and the reality once you get here is completely different. And so, for example, one of the locations that I had been super interested in is the Berlin markets. It's in every guidebook on Iquitos. It's very, very popular, very busy. And because of the coronavirus, it became a hub uh, of transmission. And when there were tests done of the vendors at the markets, 100% of them tested positive for the virus. And so that market, yes, that market ended up <laughs> getting torn down completely. Uh, so oh you can say, well, yeah, there goes one of my field sites. At the same time, I think it's kind of inevitable that you just have to be adaptable, be very, very flexible. And so I've had to change my strategy quite a bit. Uh, with the help of my supervisors. So right now, for example, I'm conducting surveys of the women who are selling aguaje on the streets, also called aguajeras, and that just involves hiring a motocar, which is a tuk-tuk in Southeast Asia, and just literally going from street corner to street corner looking for a lady <laughs> that's selling this fruit on the street. And that's absolutely something that I would not have anticipated before I got here, nor would have I considered how difficult it is just in terms of the environment it's extremely extremely hot and humid here so i'll go out and do these surveys for an hour or two hours and i'll just come home and just be knocked out for the, <laughs> the next few hours and just be just drenched in sweat and <laughs> yeah just like, oh, absolutely great. absolutely um and oh, i've geez. definitely had to be careful about dehydration and things like that of course people now are also very cognizant about hygiene issues, about maintaining social distance. The crazy thing that's happened in Iquitos is that as of perhaps a few months ago, there were reports that came out about the city reaching herd immunity. So they did a bunch of tests and supposedly 93% of the tested population had the antibodies. And so uh, things have become very relaxed in Iquitos. Um, I mean, of course, mm -hmm. during the peak of the coronavirus, Things were very scary uh, and there were a yeah. lot of deaths in the city. The regional government built a mass grave on the highway and people couldn't find their bodies. So it, it was quite, it was very, very sad and very disturbing. And of course, that also impacted my friendships here, not just my mm, research, yeah. but you're knowing people who know people who passed away. So their former colleagues, yeah. their professors, family members. And I think it, it really did have a, a very high toll for the city. For sure. Wow. It sounds very intense in terms yeah. of just the kind of mental toll that, you know, the people of Iquitos have been going through. It sounds crazy. And having one of their markets essentially torn down and having a place of connection and community like that, mm -hmm. I can only imagine that it's quite tough. Yeah. So in terms of the mental health aspect of it, how has your your own mental health and the mental health of you know the people you're working with how has that been affected sure i would say i am very thankful to be an introvert extroverted introvert um <laughs> in this period right. of time 
I had been living in a house for the first couple of months uh, in a share house and I wasn't feeling entirely safe there and so I actually moved to a new apartment and it's small but it's just for me the day of the national shutdown on March 16th so I've been very very lucky that I've had my own space I've had my own kitchen and when people were talking about self-isolation, I was doing that to a T. You know, I, I wasn't. I wasn't <laughs> I've done seeing... that. I've been doing that from day one. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. I haven't. I haven't seen anyone. You know, I would go to the supermarket and then come back home. And I think just even in those short trips, it really helped me understand the various issues that were going on in the city. Right. There's lots of news on social media, for example. Once again, very very thankful that I have the internet. I have a cell phone. A lot of people here don't have that. And I could read about what was going on in the city. So even when I was going to the supermarkets, for example, it's probably the most expensive supermarket in the city. But as a foreigner, I have the privilege to be able to do that, whereas a lot of people don't. And so that's why they're going to the markets. Uh, a lot of people don't have refrigeration, so they have to go to the markets every day. And so these kinds of things, which are important and which structure the lives of so many people in the city, was probably something that I just had never thought about beforehand. And then during the coronavirus, it really made me consider these things in a much more present and urgent manner. And when I was going to the supermarket, for example, I'd be passing by these queues of people who were trying to wait in line to, for example, pick up the bonus from the government. The, these were the cash grants from the government. And a lot of people say in the aftermath that that was one of the places where they caught the coronavirus because there were just so many people going into these uh, buildings and there was a lot of contamination that happened. And then over time, you could see how the city also adapting. So they started painting circles on the streets. So people would wait a meter apart from each other. And that was a big difference from the initial days when people were just, you know, pegged right jostled, next to each jostled, other. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because they were so worried about missing out that virus or no virus, they, they were going to risk their lives to get that money because they couldn't go out on the streets anymore to earn a living. And... Peru, for example, uh, is a country that has extremely high rates of informality. So you have over 70% of the country's workers earning a living day to day or on the streets or off the books. And so being able to be in the streets is extremely important for the livelihoods. So that really became an issue during the coronavirus as well. Sounds quite intense. Was this what you expected in terms of your fieldwork? Uh, I mean, abs- absolutely not right. I mean, and I think, oh, sorry, you did talk about mental health. I'll, I'll go backtrack a little bit. It's okay. It's, no, please. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there's, 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 so much, there's so much to talk about. Well, the mental health part, I think that's quite important. I, yeah, was very lucky that I had time and space to uh, do a lot of cooking, do a lot of art, uh, but also when the restrictions eased up and we could go outside again, Uh, The government was also very encouraging of people taking up cycling as a sport because you could socially distance very easily. And I ended up joining a cycling crew, you could call it. And I've been... Cycle gas, a bicycle (laughs) gang, perhaps? (laughs) Sure, (laughs) whatever you want to call it. Um, But I've been incredibly, incredibly thankful to have found that kind of community uh, because of what it's done for my mental health in terms of... Yeah, just having a group to be with socially, not think about fieldwork, not think about all the stresses and just go out, have a good time, be on your bike, which I love to do anyways. But then, of course, because it's fieldwork and things happen in all sorts of unpredictable ways, 
one of the organizers of the group, his cousin, lived next to a guy who is actually part of a multi-million dollar project in the regional government to commercialize the guaca. And so because I wanted to go out and get some exercise and clear my mind, I ended up making contact with probably one of the most important people uh, in my research so far. Um, mm. That's yeah. been really incredible. And of course, something that I just could not have predicted from the get-go. Yeah, wow. So you mentioned previously that you had to adapt your methods <clears throat> in terms of mm-hmm. what you're doing and how you're gathering uh, sort of data and information. Sure. Uh, can you explore what that means a little bit more? So uh, you mentioned surveys previously, but have you had to adapt other things as well? Mm. Well, I think a big part of, I think, just the approach of doing fieldwork is, especially during the coronavirus when there is so much tragedy, is how much can I actually do and should I even be doing fieldwork? And I will say that I'm in Peru because I got stuck here. It's not that I went on a <laughs> one-woman uh, rebellion against the ANU, yeah. let me be very I'm clear. I'm, I'm never coming back. <laughs> so the ANU had actually recalled all staff and students at the very beginning, I think it was March at that point. And what happened was, so President Fitzgarrett had announced the quarantine starting on Sunday, March 16th, and on Thursday, so just three days beforehand, three, four days beforehand, I had actually handed in my passport to the Ministry of Foreign Relations to get my proper visa to be able to stay here to do fieldwork. And so when it came time to try and leave the country or whatnot, I didn't have a choice because I didn't have my passport. And that also happened later on when there was a humanitarian flight from Iquitos. I still did not have my passport. And so it, it was a bit, in some ways it was nice that it was out of my hands, but of course it, it was only possible to survive the quarantine because I have all the privileges of being a foreigner. And, you know, I think it would have been very, very different, of course, if things had been different. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Wow. I can only imagine the uh, initial sense of panic that might have instilled in, in you. Yeah, I'm not sure I felt so much panic as I did feel, I guess, a little bit of guilt mm, in terms and stress in terms of if something happens to me here, it'll be very difficult for me to get home to my family. There's the question of flights, catching the coronavirus on the flights, going back home, having the two-week quarantine just everything like that I think seemed more stressful than just staying put self-isolating and just taking care of myself here and I also felt like early on Fitzcarra had put in a quarantine quite early I mean Peru unfortunately is ranked quite high in terms of the number of deaths and there's lots of reasons why that is but initially it seemed like it would be quite safe to stay here as well so I wasn't too worried about that on my own account. You had asked earlier also about how it's impacted uh, fieldwork. Well, I mean, mm. going back to that, one of the most important contacts that I have here is a guy who runs a fruit pulp processing company. And uh, I could see from what he was posting on Facebook that he personally knew a lot of people that had died from the coronavirus. And so in times like that, there's really no fieldwork to be done. The most I could do was just kind of reach out once in a while and just be like, hey, how's it going? I hope you're doing well. But there was absolutely no question of me broaching the topic of 
oh, so how's business going these days? You know, that that's just not possible. Um, and I think that's the reality for uh, so many people in the world right now. There's just some things that can't go on. You just have to give it time. You have to let people grieve. And if possible, be a part of what's going on in the community. Try and volunteer or donate. And I think it's really up to other people at that point to give you the green light in terms of whether your fieldwork can continue. Of course, formally, it might be a different thing altogether. Your scholarship has a finite date, but I think it's very hard to pressure these kinds of relationships to give you something. Without potentially, you know, destroying that relationship. Right, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and just on a human level, um, I think... Yeah, for sure. Now is not quite the time to do that, right? And, And you just have to be very cognizant of that. And so actually with that same contact, I ran into him last week at a public event that was organized by the regional government and he seemed quite happy to see me and so because of that and also because he showed up at a public event it seems like he's also getting back slowly to his normal life and so now I would feel a bit more comfortable just to call him up and say hey how are things going and to see if it's possible to continue with my field work in that way. Mm, I see it's quite strange that you mentioned how sort of almost serendipitous your fieldwork has been in relation to meeting the the next door neighbor of yes. <laughs> someone in your cycle group yes. who who happens to be working yes. as a someone who works in your uh, research interest area. Like I think that's very strange how that works. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the amazing things about anthropology is that such a big part of the methodology is just putting yourself out there and talking to people. And I think once you do that, then you just put yourself into situations where there's a greater possibility of these kinds of incidents happening. And sometimes it can feel quite overwhelming, (laughs) but I think it's also incredibly fortuitous. And especially when you're in a city that's not much bigger than Canberra, maybe a little bit smaller, a lot of people know each other. And so once you kind of get to know a few people, then, you know, Formally, we call it the snowball method, right? You have one person recommend another person and then it keeps going that way. But things just happen so organically. You know, Some things would just be because I'm hanging out with friends and then they'll mention something that's incredibly, incredibly important. And then, of course, I have my little notebook that I carry with me all the time and then I have to pull, I have to pull that out and, and take notes and, <laughs> and whatnot. But I think if you're especially hanging out with people and the same topic comes up over and over again, then that's probably something that you should be paying attention to. Whether or not it was initially a part of your research project, it might become something that ends up being very important. Just because you didn't know about it beforehand or you weren't paying attention to it beforehand doesn't mean that it's important to the people that you're hanging out with and that you're uh, interviewing. Mm, Absolutely. Do you feel as though that there's almost a responsibility for you yourself to authentically and wholeheartedly represent the experiences and stories of the people that you're working with? Do you feel it's your responsibility in that kind of way? Or how are you approaching this kind of field work in terms of that mental state? Most anthropologists would agree that that's definitely a part of what they hope to do. I mean, whether or not that's actually possible, I think is another, <laughs> is another question. Isn't it? It's a, that's, uh, I another, mean, that's another question. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, how much time do you actually need to spend with someone to be able to accurately, quote unquote, accurately represent their lives? And if so, mm. are you representing them in a way that they want to be represented? 
and if that's the case, then is that accurate anymore? You know, there's lots of <laughs> these kinds of questions about the point of view. Yeah. And I think for me, the type of representation that I'm looking at, for example, with these women that are working as aguajeras, is I think important because so much of what you read in scientific literature about the palm fruit talks about its commercial potential in terms of its biological characteristics or its economic worth. But I think just in terms of focusing on the women who are producing the aguaje to sell on the streets, there's a big part missing in the literature in terms of labour that goes into their work. So, for example, one of the ladies that I've talked to quite a bit, she wakes up at 2 a.m. in the morning to start making this drink that's made from the guaje. And then she goes to the markets at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. to buy and haggle over the prices of the sacks of the guaje. And, you know, there's a lot in terms of, okay, you know, this is how much people are consuming and and this is how much uh, people are cutting down. This is a big problem for conservation and all that. I mean, I I think that is all important, but I think the fact that this aguaje fruit plays such a big role in structuring women's lives on a social sense, on an economic sense, is also very important and needs to be talked about. And so, you know, whether or not I can actually do that job well, (laughs) I think that might be up to other people to decide. But I do think (laughs) just as a topic in and of itself, it's something that merits a lot of attention. And these Mm. women themselves will tell me uh, that they're incredibly proud that it's with their earnings from selling this fruit on the side of the street that they've been able to send their kids to school. And we're not talking about a couple of people here. We're not talking about a dozen people here. We're talking about potentially hundreds of women in the city are utilizing this uh, as a way of living so it's really impacting a lot of people in the city not just the women of course but their families their partners their children their parents and so i think in terms of understanding the city and how it works uh, this is actually a, a great avenue to investigate that in her tribute to david graber rebecca solnit wrote about how she had talked to him earlier and had praised him for writing very clearly and David Graeber had said that, well, that's just in some ways an extension of his politics, that the whole point of academia was to be accessible. And I think that's a really important point to keep in mind as I'm working with these women in particular. One of the main contacts that I've had, she's talked to me about how I should be writing my dissertation in Spanish, because how on earth is she meant to be able to understand it (laughs) if I write in English? And... I thought that was just such a great point. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what I'm going to be doing. I mean, obviously I'm going to be writing a, a thesis in English, but it makes me think about the ways in which I also need to be accountable in, in some ways uh, to the people that I am spending all this time with and who are inviting me into their homes and to think about the different ways in which I can convey my thesis in forms that are not just in a book perhaps or not just in a thesis Um, maybe there are visual ways there are more creative ways but I think that's something that as a researcher we need to think about these kinds of things for sure wow yeah I feel as though that's something that like you said it is missing from the uh, scientific literature everyone sort of sees these plants and these things but they kind of divorce them from the context and which they're being used and what, you know, what the people use them for.
slightly. Sure. Do you have so far a highlight from your field work that you were like, oh, this is great. I love this. Oh. Or do you have something that is memorable to you? Again, if you don't have one yet, that's <laughs> like if you don't have one that you can't share or anything like that, that's fine too. Or I'll say that there have been lots and lots of highlights and there have been lots and lots of lowlights, most of them involving <laughs> uh, bugs. <laughs> Oh, no. um, un- unidentified <laughs> bug bites. Um, oh. oh no! Yes. <laughs> I, unfortunately, that will probably still be part of my future here in Iquitos. Yes. <laughs> it's just uh, a way of life, I guess. Uh, if you're going into the jungle, but I'd say, oh, a highlight would be very recently. I went to the family farm of a friend, and there they grow paiche and paiche is a very important fish for the region and they can grow up to two meters long which is quite incredible they're very prehistoric looking it's a big part of the the local cuisine and the gastronomy but while we were there we had a little bit of fun in the jungle area in the terrain and my friend's grandfather actually cut off a vine and a little pathway and so we were swinging on the vine in the middle of the forest (laughs) Um, that does sound like a highlight yeah so i'd say that yeah that was a highlight wow have you been in contact with any other people from back home back home putting quotation marks of course i have my my friends in the anthropology department who i've kept in touch with who are focusing on writing doing field work as well some people whose field work has been completely disrupted and they're not allowed to continue based on where they are at the moment, which is quite difficult. Um, and of course, uh, I'm keeping in regular contact with my supervisors who have been incredibly, incredibly helpful. I don't know what I would be doing without them. Shout out to Francesca Merlin and Tim Denham. Um, there's also Kylie Schuster in there as well. But I think, yeah, just... I can't, I can't imagine what fieldwork would be like without technology and internet and all that. I mean, here I complain about the technology all the time, but even then, sometimes it does work. And when it does, I'm very, very thankful. Other times I spend the entire week waking up in the middle of the night to download a program. <laughs> and I wake up multiple times oh, in the middle of the night to make sure that it keeps downloading and that it hasn't stopped downloading. And I'm talking about Microsoft Word updates. I'm not talking about... (laughs) Not even something big, (laughs) just something... uh, Exactly. Something I really need. Exactly. And so, you know, there was was one week where it was just, yeah, a a week of no sleep trying to update my laptop. But... We can call that... We'll call that a low light. Yeah, we'll call that a low light (laughs) along with the bugs. Um, But, yeah, incredibly, incredibly thankful that... During the quarantine, for example, one of my closest friends here, we kept in touch pretty much every day on WhatsApp just to check in, kind of like, hey, are you alive? <laughs> that kind of thing. And <laughs> I think it's really important, of course, to maintain your relationships with people back home. But of course, having someone close by who I knew could step in and help me if I really needed help at any time, That I think that kind of support is just priceless. I was quite sad recently to hear about the passing of David Graeber and also mm. Sally Engel-Mary, um, who's a legal anthropologist. Not quite as famous mm-hmm. as David Graeber, but they were both quite important, I would say, in my own development and thinking. And so I just think on top of all the tragedy that's already happened this year, it was just, oh, that was... It's yeah, a tough one, Yeah, it was tough to hear. 
It's a tough one to lose. Yeah. I I was living in New York at the time when Occupy Wall Street happened. I was working at a non-profit in Brooklyn and then there were all these news of protests happening in Sakati Park in Lower Manhattan. And and I think that was actually one of the many things that happened that uh, actually made me want to come home to Australia was because I felt too chicken to actually go and protest because I'd been in the US for quite a long time at that point and because of all the immigration procedures that I had gone through to get my student visas and then my work visas, I just never felt safe in the sense that if I showed up to a protest, I would just be constantly worried about getting deported. And this is was the privilege of an Australian passport, not even, you know, a passport from a country where Trump might call it the whole country. <laughs> I, I remember visiting Sukkoti Park and, and seeing everything. And I think that was quite an incredible moment for me because it was a protest right in the belly of the beast. I mean, you're talking about Wall Street, you're talking about Zuccotti Park, which is an example of how messed up things have become. It's a, it's one of these public spaces that are run by public-private partnerships, which means that it doesn't belong to the public, even though it's a public space. And I think it was quite incredible to see people taking that space back. And so I thought that, that was just really incredible to see a philosophy and an idea about the 99% translate down into this very tangible, vis- visible action and the building of social relations between people as well. It's interesting that that had an effect on you where got you where you are now, essentially. It very much informed your thinking and, and helped sort of guide you to where you are today, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's lots of things that happened along the way, but I think I was at the right place in my life where I gotten a little bit sick and tired of being in the US. This is like, oh, if I go home, I can actually um, be involved politically in a way where um, I don't have to be worried about my immigration status. (laughs) And I think... think, I'm not going to get deported. (laughs) Right. And I think that's an absolute privilege of citizenship. And I think growing up as the children of uh, immigrants were often told not to get involved in things politically to keep our heads down, mm-hmm. work hard. But I think yeah. it, it gave me a, a different perspective on what is within your rights and yeah. uh, what can be worth fighting for. Exactly. I've had a few times where my family have sort of said, uh, you know, don't stir the pot. It's okay. Just keep doing what you need to do. And, you know, there is a sense of um, don't be outspoken or don't be an activist yeah. in, in case it threatens you know your potential future in terms of your own stability what you want to do what you, yeah exactly exactly what what were the inc- oh, incidents just me <laughs> talking about well recently i attended uh the black lives matter protest oh right and it it wasn't anything overt you know my family didn't say oh why did you go you just shouldn't have gone but it was just the uh the subtle sort of eyebrow raise mm. going Mm, you were aware. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> you were aware. What were you doing? Did you wear a mask? Mm. You know, all these sort of questions. Yeah. That are, you know, they are valid questions. We are living in, you know, we've been talking about COVID nineteen this whole podcast. We are living in these times. Yep. But I also think that there should be a place for activism. 
even within these right. sort of strange times that we're living in. I mean, and people in the US, I mean, I know my friends over there were, of course, also very worried about COVID um, when they were out protesting. But, you know, from what I've read in the news, uh, it it hasn't become a, a hub for contagion. People, Infection, yeah, right. people really yeah. did keep their distance. They were quite responsible about wearing their masks. And, and so I think... That is quite incredible, right? That people have been protesting and getting together, even in this uh, crazy time, and that they've been able to do it responsibly, keeping in mind what's happening with coronavirus as well. So, good on you. Yeah. Well, good on everyone. Yeah. Diana. Yes. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Today's episode was produced by me, Matt, with help from all the other Familiar Strangers. Our executive producer is Deanna Keto. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. While you're there, check out the latest blog post by Joe Clifford, who explores advertising and the changing face of New Zealand. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. And until next time, keep talking strange.